You're listening to The Coffee Hour, IBA Debates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. I'm pretty excited because remember last year when we did a history series with Dr. McKenzie on the English Reformation? I do, and it was amazing. It was so much fun. I learned a lot. And a lot of our listeners also let us know that they appreciated that series. Mm -hmm. So we reached out to Dr. McKenzie and said, would you be interested in doing some more history with us? Because we love (laughs) learning from you. And of course, as always, he said, absolutely. Yes. And so we are going to take a look at some history that perhaps is a little closer to home. Last time we looked at the English Reformation, which Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about, but it really was helpful to me. Yeah. And some really cool experiences. Went to the theater to see something. (laughs) They even helped me in that. So now we're going to go a little closer to home. History of uh, Lutherans in North America, particularly looking at the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Dr. Cameron McKenzie is professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Well, thank you, Andy and Sarah. I'm glad to be with you. Always enjoy this. We always have a blast just enjoying history as you share it like story as if like sometimes you share it as if you were there, but I know you weren't. <laughs> well, I, I've i experienced a lot of the synodical history, but not quite that much. <laughs> Where do we want to start? We want to start in Germany in the early to mid 1800s. Is that right? Yeah. If you just think about it for a second, the Missouri Senate started in 1847. Those were all adults who started it. And so if they're in their 30s or 40s, we're getting back into the first part of the 19th century when they were actually born. They, for the most part, they were shaped by their experiences in Germany and had those experiences when they came over and that helped to determine what they wanted to do once they came to the United States. So I think it's important for the listener to just think for a moment about what it was like in the church from which the founders of the Senate came to the United States. In particular, the early years of the 19th century had been dominated by the Napoleonic Wars. And those had come, well, they lasted an entire generation, and they came to a conclusion only in 1815. What had happened was the French Revolution in the roughly 1790 And that had thrown Europe into uh, turmoil. And there was all kinds of reconsiderations of what kind of governments they ought to have, what kind of society they ought to have, what kind of church they ought to have. So Napoleon comes along and he reorganizes all of that in France and extends his reorganization to the rest of Europe. But finally, he's defeated. And the Europeans have to figure out what they want uh, to follow Napoleon. Uh, To a certain extent, they tried to put things back together the way they had been before. But when it came to what we call today Germany, uh, they did not do that. Instead, they had other thoughts about how that part of Europe should be organized. Uh, When you think back to Luther's day, you remember perhaps that Luther lived and worked in Saxony And maybe that Saxony was a part of the Holy Roman Empire. You recall at the Diet of Worms, he had to appear before the emperor, Charles V. Well, Germany wasn't really Germany. It was the central part in this 
entity called the Holy Roman Empire. And that consisted of really 700, not 700, several hundred little pieces, some of them larger than others, but all of them formed during the Middle Ages. Well, that entity survived up until Napoleon. And when Napoleon was gone, the leading statesmen of Europe decided that they were not going to reconstitute the Holy Roman Empire. So what they did instead was to create in the center of Europe uh, an entity known as the German Confederation, which was made up of 39 different little pieces of German. It's hard for us to imagine that part of Europe being in that many different pieces, but that's what it was. It, the German, what we think of Germany, was 39 different little Germanies. Some of those parts were very small. Others were bigger. Perhaps the biggest was Prussia in the north. Also sizable was Austria in the south. Kind of in the middle and on the eastern part, you had Saxony, what was left of it after the Napoleonic Wars, going right back to the era of Martin Luther. But at any rate, you had all these different little Germanies. And because it was not the same as it had been before, in each of those places, they had to figure out what they were going to do for church. Again, one of the things your listeners need to remember is that in this period, the churches were all state churches. That went back to the days of the Reformation when Luther had effected the Reformation. It was with the government support, the electors and so forth. And so coming out of the Reformation, you had state churches. Now Napoleon had upset all of that and the reconstitution raised the question of, well, what should we do about the church? For the most part, they decided to continue the idea of state churches, but they couldn't just go back to what they had because the geographic borders were different. So in a place like Prussia, where the Prussians had been one of the big victors over Napoleon, the Prussian army had helped the English and the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo, for example, to finally finish Napoleon off for good. The Prussian army had played a key role in that. So in the reconstituted German states, Prussia had greatly expanded its borders. And that meant that within Prussia, you had not just one state church, but many territories, each of which historically had had its own state church. And so they had to kind of figure out, well, what are we going to do here? Are we going to kind of keep this old arrangement? Are we going to do something new? What should we do? Well, the interesting thing about Prussia is that they decided to do something brand new, but something that also became very controversial. The king of Prussia was a very pious king. He had been, a, as I say, one of the victors over Napoleon, but he wanted to have a strong Christian church, but he wasn't interested in maintaining the kind of church that they had had prior to. Uh, Napoleon, or during the days of the Reformation, a church which was divided, well, I shouldn't say a church, churches. Some churches were Lutheran, some churches were Reformed. And he got the bright idea that what you ought to do is bring both of those churches together and create a union church called 
in the history books, the Prussian Union. So this is going to set off all kinds of controversy, all kinds of rethinking of what the church in Germany ought to look like in the days after Napoleon. Maybe I'll pause there for a second and see if you've got any uh, questions about this so far. I think that's very interesting to know all of the the political context of what was happening because that plays so strongly into the church context because of those state churches. So it's, it's a very good history to know about as we look at the as we look at the emigration of people from Saxony. So I, I would love to dig more into the that Prussian Union, the effects of it. If, if that's sure. where you're going with this, that would be, and that's very interesting. Okay, good deal. Well, so the King of Prussia wants to bring the Lutherans together with the Reformed. And he doesn't want to make the Lutherans into Reformed or the Reformed into Lutherans. He just wants them to be in one church where they will preach the word of God together where they will go to communion together, where they will be run by a superintended board, which includes Lutherans and Reformed, so that there will be one evangelical Protestant church within Prussia instead of two different churches, Reformed and Lutheran. Because it's the king of Prussia who wants this, and because this is still a very hierarchical society with kings, dukes, princes, people pretty much arranged in the same kind of social classes that they were at the time of the Reformation period. So the king wants it. Most people are going to go along with it. And so they did. Most churches ended up embracing the union. For the most part, it didn't really matter. Nobody noticed anything different in their churches because the pastor didn't change, the parish didn't change. They just were now a part of this Prussian union. However, And that was done in 1817 at the 300th anniversary of the Reformation. This was the king's way of celebrating the Reformation. Um, to, To make this a little bit more noticeable, the king of Prussia had another idea, and that was to replace all the ways in which the churches had worshiped before with a common agenda, a common book of worship services, in which the Lutherans and the Reformed would now be worshiping from the same book. So the Prussian Union produced a Prussian agenda, a new worship book. And this, when it was put into effect, did set off some alarms by those who still wanted to be Lutheran, because the new book, it had some things that were Lutheran, but it had some things that were Reformed. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the things that alarmed the people who rejected it was what the pastor said when he distributed the consecrated elements. Now, just think about it for a moment. When you go to communion, what does the pastor say when he gives you the consecrated bread? The body of Christ. Good. That's what he says, the body of Christ. All right. In this new in this new book, he was instructed to say, Jesus says, this is my body. And then Jesus says, this is my blood. Now, you wouldn't disagree with that statement, would you? No. No. Okay. But neither would the Reformed. Nobody disagreed about whether Jesus said that or not. They disagreed about what he meant. 
And in the Reformed, they uh, believed that what Jesus meant was, this is a sign or symbol of my body. Now, it might be a power pack sign or symbol, but it was still just the symbol. The bread was not the body, but a symbol of that body. So this was a compromise liturgy. But if you know that that's why it's been prepared that way, you're not going to like it. You're going to say, well, no, you're trying to obscure the reality of what we believe, namely that it is the body of Christ. So that was one of the aspects of this new worship book that alarmed some of the of the Lutherans. So we end up with a union movement that does unite lots of Protestants, Lutherans and Reformed in Prussia, but also sets off the alarm bells out of which comes a resistance to that Prussian Union. And some of those people who resist that Prussian Union will end up coming to the United States. So that's one of the things that's going on in the German church that is particularly alarming, this big union movement to do away with the confessional differences between Lutherans and Reformed, especially in Prussia, but in other parts of the German states as well. We will, let's take a pause there and we'll come back. I want to talk a little bit more about why that was so significant for those who who chose to leave, why that was so problematic, that, that compromise or that union, if you will. We'll do that in just a moment. We are in our history series, taking a look at Lutherans coming to North America, particularly history of the Lutheran Church, Missouri, ascended with the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are in a new history series with Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're taking a look at history of Lutherans in North America, particularly Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And so we we are in the early 18 to mid 1800s in German, what we now call Germany. Prussia. We're talking about the the union that was that the the king of Prussia. Is that right? Uh, yeah, the king of Prussia. King of right. Prussia was imposing this union of Reformed and Lutheran churches to to be a union church. Why was that a problem for so many Lutherans? Why was this 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 union or this compromise of joining these two churches of different confessions together? Well, as one of the Lutherans put it, if what Jesus said in the words of institution, this is my body, was true, then it was still true in 1817, 1820, 18, and 1830. It still was his body. So there was that aspect of it. This is something that's biblical. But more importantly, you know, Lutherans have always contended that the Lord's Supper it is a way in which God 
distributes the saving work of Jesus to us, that with the, the bread, there, with the body, there is the promise that this was the body given for you. And with the blood, this is the blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So that the sacrament is a distribution of the saving work of Jesus. And so it's something that we really can't compromise about if we want to remain faithful uh, to the what Jesus said, but even maybe more so faithful to the saving intent of the sacrament. So it, it, it kind of went to the heart of what does it mean to be Lutheran. And so this union movement really raises questions for the Lutherans especially, but reform too, but the Lutherans, what really does it mean to be Lutheran in the 19th century? And a number of people began to answer that question, well, to be Lutheran in the 19th century is the same thing as it meant in the 16th century. That is to be faithful to the word of God as it was confessed by Luther and the others in the small catechism, the large catechism, the Augsburg Confession, the entire scope of the Book of Concord. So we get, in this same period of time as the Prussian Union, kind of a revival among Lutherans, not just in Prussia, but elsewhere in the German, among the German territories, a revival of commitment to real, old-fashioned Lutheranism, as described in the Confessions. And although many of those confessional leaders stayed in Germany, others were among those who came to the United States. From Prussia, for example, you had a group in the late 1830s led by a fellow by the name of Grabau, Johannes August Andreas Grabau, who brought over several hundred immigrants, and they settled in large numbers in Buffalo, New York, and also in Wisconsin, Milwaukee and Freistadt. Uh, area uh, were settled by these Prussian uh, confessional Lutherans. Uh, meanwhile, down in Saxony, which is maybe I wonder where I shift our attention uh, at this point, um, there were other Lutherans concerned about unionism and other things that also led to their leaving and coming to the United States. Uh, so if it's okay with you too. Let's shift our attention to uh, Saxony and talk about the situation there for a little bit. Certainly. Okay. Saxony was not the important territory that Prussia was. Prussia will end up bringing all the other German states into the Second Empire that was established in 1871, the Kaisers and so forth. Saxony was a kingdom, but they were on the losing side. They had lined up with Napoleon. And when Napoleon lost, so did they. So Saxony was smaller than it had been. A chunk of Saxony ended up in Prussia. Uh, but nonetheless, it still had a state Lutheran church. Uh, the Union had not yet been introduced into Saxony, uh, but it had all kinds of problems. Uh, in the 17th century, the rulers of Saxony had changed religions. They were no longer Lutheran. They were Catholic. And so they kind of let the church run its own affairs. But because it was a state church, it accommodated itself to all kinds of different ideas. The pietist movement, and especially in the 18th century, the rationalist movement, had really taken over the theological schools and the upper echelons of the Lutheran clergy. So you had 
terrible instances of Lutherans preaching and teaching who no longer preached or taught what the Bible taught about Jesus being God and man or about the Holy Trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or about the notion that the death of Christ paid for the sins of the world. Rationalists of the 18th century rejected all of those things, and yet many of them stayed within state Lutheran churches, including the church in Saxony. So Lutherans who were in this period now wanting to become authentically Lutheran ran up against leaders in the Saxon State Church who were opposed opposed to what it is that they were standing for. I'll give you a couple examples of that. In 1835, Geneva celebrated the 300th anniversary of its Reformation. Now, Geneva, of course, had been the heart of Calvinism. That's where Calvin was the great reformer. And so it's fine that they were celebrating their anniversary. But Saxony uh, decided to send an official delegation to help them celebrate. So the Lutherans of Saxony were helping the Reformed of Geneva celebrate their anniversary, which made no sense from the standpoint of confessional Lutheranism. They had also appointed to to the administration a man who was a, a rationalist. And these rationalists opposed some of these more Lutheran preachers when they came along. So you have also then within Saxony the development of a confessional revival opposed to the rationalism at the upper echelons of the church. And as they proceed, at least some of them, like those Prussians under Grabau, will decide finally that this is a situation they can't put up with, and so they are forced, forced to leave. And it's from groups like this in Saxony, and to a lesser extent, but still also true from Prussia that the leaders and first congregations and first members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod will eventually be formed. So that's why we're talking about it here. They are going to come to America after having done battle for the truth and the Lutheran confessions on many fronts, but especially the rationalist front and the unionist front. Those will be two things that they're very concerned about when they get here to America. We've got just about two minutes left. Is there any an, an overview of how rationalism and unionism affected the church, just to kind of give us a preview of what we're going to jump sure. into in our next episode? All right. Well, let me give let me give you an example of rationalism. Uh, this was uh, preached in Prussia by a rationalist. Uh, this is the report. One Easter Sunday, a local pastor preached that there is no resurrection of the body. A man went to ask him whether he had understood him correctly. He now found the pastor gambling with cards. And the pastor took a coin from the table and said, Go buy yourself a rope and then hang yourself. Then you will find out just how valid the resurrection idea is. And if you can, then come back and tell us what there is to it. So that was was rationalism. Yeah, that was pretty terrible. So... The what they would do is they tried to give another reason for going to church, and that meant, oh, teach people how to farm correctly, teach people how to make a will, teach people about practical living, uh, but there is no substance to to the faith anymore. 
Now, the unionists are, aren't like that, but they're indifferent to doctrine. They're indifferent to the sacraments. They're indifferent to the kind of careful division of law and gospel. They're in, interested in sanctification, but they're not interested so much in kind of rooting sanctification in the in the saving work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit connected to the means of grace. So you get a lot of emotionalism in unionism, which doesn't do much good either. And somewhere along the line, pietism comes in here too, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I actually, I should, well. <laughs> we'll save that for another episode. Okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am already just immersed and so we're just going to spend the rest of the day we're just going to take the coffee hour and just do three this hours the rest of, of the day hour, right yeah fine. six hours that's <laughs> six fine hours. <laughs> no we'll save it for future episodes dr mckenzie thank you so much for uh, launching a new series with us on history of the lutheran church missouri synod i am just I, I can't wait to dig into more thanks so much for being our guest today okay you're welcome you've been listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah golseth The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.